We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And away we go. Episode 291 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Wednesday, April 13th. 2022, as this week rather quickly has become a week in which the futures of ownerships in Washington, D.C. sports are in question like maybe never before. We on Monday had the big news that the learners are open to selling the Nationals. And to me, the correct interpretation of that news is that the learners are wanting to sell the Nats. They are for sale. We'll see what happens, but the Nats are for sale. Uh, and then on Tuesday, we we got the big news that Congress's House Committee on Oversight and Reform, which is the committee that has been investigating the commanders in regards to their workplace misconduct scandal and now financial scandal, sent a letter to the Federal Trade Commission with torrid details of the alleged financial impropriety by the commanders. Now, perhaps the details aren't true, but if they are true, this may well be it for Dan Snyder as owner of the Commanders. Uh, These details feature the Commanders allegedly having essentially stolen money from ticket-paying fans and from other NFL teams. And the details feature Dan Snyder allegedly having known about this stuff and having, in fact, ordered this stuff. Now, again, we don't know if all of this is true. There's a lot of back and forth right now. Uh, The credibility of the whistleblower in the financial scandal for the commanders, this guy, Jason Friedman, has been called into question. Uh, Maybe he's wrong and or lying, but maybe he's right and is telling the truth. Maybe Jason Friedman to Congress has been dropping truth like it's going out of style, and maybe, just maybe, the end of Dan Snyder as owner of the Commanders 
is actually finally coming. Next segment, my analysis of the letter and what this all could mean for Dan Snyder, the commanders, and you and me as fans of the team. Uh, Also on the show, a special guest, Commander's Insider, Ben Standing of The Athletic DC. Uh, We're going to evaluate the state of the Commander's roster as we're getting closer to the 2022 NFL Draft, which will begin on April 28th. Uh, An honest assessment of what the Commanders have and do not have, what they need, and what they maybe do not need as much as some think. Uh, We'll also do some Commander's Draft talk and I'll ask Ben about some very interesting recent comments from Ron Rivera to Ben about why the commanders haven't done more in free agency. Uh, How about our Capitals? Uh, They are on fire. A season-high tying fourth consecutive win on Tuesday night. A 9-2 shredding of the Philadelphia Flyers at Capital One Arena. A 9-2 humbling of the Flyers at Capital One Arena. Make him humble. Yes, as the Iron Sheik would say, make him humble. Make him humble. Yes, Sheiky baby, the Caps put the Flyers in the camel clutch and made them humble. Uh, so much to like about the Caps right now. An incredible offensive performance on Tuesday night, but also a really good defensive performance. I'll talk about it all, as well as talk Nationals and Orioles. Uh, whereas the Caps had a great Tuesday night, uh, the Nats did not have a great Tuesday night. A 16-4 loss at the Atlanta Braves as Patrick Corbin got torched Uh, Although Juan Soto did have a good game, but we also had D. Strange Gordon pitching. Yes, outfielder, D. Strange Gordon pitching in the bottom of the eighth and getting hammered. And that about summed up the game. Uh, The O's lost to the Milwaukee Brewers 5-4 at Oriole Park at Camden Yards, but there were some bright spots for the O's that I want to discuss. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Lots of tweets and emails on the latest in the alleged financial impropriety by Dan Snyder and the Commanders. I tell you, the new cycle with Dan and the Commanders, Dan and the Seas, never stops. A tweet from Mr. Bombastic. I pray that he gets removed so we can heal as a fan base. Tweet from Christopher King, I don't think Dan can be removed unless we find him with a literal smoking gun. Tweet from David Fogel, former 10-plus year season ticket holder here, excited to re-up when he's gone. Tweet from Coach T, no confidence in the NFL or Congress to get rid of the Snyders anytime soon. Tweet from DC Commanders. Imagine the party and the parade if this happens. Uh, yes, DC Commanders, we can only imagine. A tweet from Gray Mitchell. Wouldn't it be great if hating Dan Snyder is the thing that brings this country <laughs> back together? Uh, yes, that would be quite a thing, Gray Mitchell. That would be quite a thing. Uh, email from Adam in D.C. I have one name for you, Al. Jeff 
Bezos. There were rumors about Jeff wanting to own the skins. The rumors went away, but I have a theory that Jeff Bezos has been pulling strings behind the scenes. Who else has the time, power, and money to orchestrate Dan's demise? Love you, Al. Keep it going. Uh, thank you, Adam. I love you, too. Uh, yeah, the Jeff Bezos theory has been out there for a while, especially considering that he owns the Washington Post, and the Post has broken a number of stories in these scandals, especially the workplace misconduct scandal. But who the heck knows? Uh, well, you know, there have been rumors that Jeff Bezos underwent cosmetic surgery. Did you know that? Uh, who knows if those rumors are true? Uh, we do know that he did get divorced a few years ago. Uh, he also has gotten jacked in recent years. Jeff Bezos has put on some serious muscle, but if he has done anything to his skin, that's his business, of course. And if he does buy our commanders and he's spending more time in the Washington, D.C. area, then he definitely needs to contact Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. Whatever your dermatological needs may be, Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland are there for you. Dr. Verghese is a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. He is one of the nation's premier dermatologists. He is a big Commanders fan. He is a loyal listener of this podcast, and operating under his direction is the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. The Institute focuses on medical skin care, cosmetic procedures, and skin cancer diagnosis and comprehensive care. Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer treatments for conditions such as acne, psoriasis, and eczema. Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer state-of-the-art services such as Botox, laser hair removal, and chemical peels. Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer advanced treatments for many skin cancers. Heck, Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer free skin cancer screenings. To find out more, call 301-396-3401. That's 301-396-3401. Make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you, but that phone number is 301-396-3401. You can also visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. For excellent and comprehensive skincare, contact Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, and make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you. As is always the case, I appreciate you listening to this podcast. Uh, I also appreciate those of you who have rated and reviewed the podcast. Uh, please do those things if you haven't yet done those things. Uh, they cost you nothing but like 60 seconds of your time. That's it. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, in other words, the purple icon on your iPhone or iPad, you can give the podcast a five-star rating, and you also can write a review of the podcast. Now, the review doesn't have to be long, okay? We're not looking for Shakespearean text here. Uh, just like a sentence or two on how much you like the podcast or why you like the podcast, that sort of thing. Uh, advertisers look at the ratings and the reviews, so they do help out a lot. So as you surely know, money makes people do crazy things. Uh, money and love make people do 
crazy things. Uh, actually, money, love, and uh, <laughs> drugs and alcohol make people do crazy things. I'm not sure which phenomenon is responsible for the most crazy things, money, love, or drugs and alcohol, but you get the idea. Money makes people do crazy things. The owner of the Commanders, Dan Snyder, is worth $4 billion, according to Forbes. Why Dan would ever do anything illegal or even immoral for money at this point, given his worth, would seem ridiculous, right? I mean, the guy is filthy rich. He only figures to become richer in the coming years, given the NFL's new massive national television contracts. And you know what? Maybe Dan Snyder hasn't done anything illegal or immoral for money. Uh, maybe all of this stuff in the alleged financial impropriety is wrong. You know, maybe all of this stuff is just a bunch of fake news. Uh, after all, Dan and the commanders have adamantly denied any wrongdoing. You know, you have Dan and the commander saying one thing. You have the whistleblower in the commander's financial scandal, this guy Jason Friedman, saying another. Uh, one side here clearly is wrong, if not outright lying. And if this guy Jason Friedman is wrong and or is lying, if what this guy Jason Friedman is alleging is just a bunch of fake news, uh, then both he and Congress are going to look really bad. You know, they're going to look like clowns. And Danny Boy is going to be even more empowered and will be a sympathetic figure in the minds of at least some because it'll then look like the Democrats in Congress are just out to get Dan Snyder. However, if what Jason Friedman is alleging is true, then it's very hard to see how Dan Snyder survives this, how Dan survives as owner of the Commanders. And so, my friends, it may well be that we now are closer than ever before to Dan Snyder being ousted as owner of the Commanders. Yes, the holy grail for the Washington, D.C. sports fan may be about to be discovered. It may well be that we now are closer than ever before to a coup of the Danny. As Dan's friend turned bitter enemy, Bruce Allen, once said about the state of the team, it means you're close. It means you're close. Yes, Bruce, it means we're close. What must Brucifer be thinking right now? Never forget it was the leaked emails of Bruce Allen from his time as a Redskins executive that led to congressional involvement in the commander's workplace misconduct scandal. That involvement has led us to this financial scandal. We still don't know who leaked the Bruce Allen emails, but whoever did is responsible for this scandal of workplace misconduct and now this new scandal of alleged financial impropriety gaining steam and now perhaps leading us to the ouster of Dan Snyder as owner of the Commanders. It may be that this financial scandal, not the workplace misconduct scandal, but the financial scandal is what brings down Dan Snyder as owner of the Commanders. We on Tuesday had a bombshell that Congress's House Committee on Oversight and Reform, which has been investigating 
the commander's workplace misconduct scandal and then alleged financial impropriety by the team, has sent a letter to the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, with eye-hopping details of the alleged financial impropriety by the commanders. Uh, The letter is a 20-page letter addressed to the Honorable Lena M. Kahn, who is the chair of the Federal Trade Commission. The letter states that, quote, evidence obtained by the committee, including emails, documents, and statements from former employees, indicate senior executives and the team's owner, Daniel Snyder, may have engaged in a troubling, long-running, and potentially unlawful pattern of financial conduct that victimized thousands of team fans in the National Football League, end quote. Uh, I want to take you through key portions of and items in the letter. So one of the first things about the letter that did jump out to me is that the letter does feature conditional words, Uh, you know, words like may and according and indicate. Uh, In other words, the letter does not say things in a definitive manner. Take, for example, this key passage, quote, according to information and documents obtained by the committee for over a decade, commanders' executives may have withheld billions of dollars in refundable security deposits owed to customers upon the expiration of their multi-year seat leases and may have taken steps to prevent customers from collecting these deposits. According to a former team executive, the commanders failed to properly refund those security deposits intentionally and took various steps to retain as much of that money as possible. Documents indicate that as of 2016, the team may have retained up to $5 million in deposits from approximately 2,000 customers End quote. So some definite serious allegations right there. I mean, that the commanders may have retained up to $5 million in deposits from approximately 2,000 customers is a whopper. I mean, that is a total FU to the ticket-paying commander's fan. But there are a lot of conditional words in that passage. Again, words like may and according and indicate. Uh, However, the letter also makes it clear that the allegations aren't just based on the words of Jason Friedman, the whistleblower. Uh, Jason Friedman, in case you don't know, was a ticketing employee of the Commander's franchise for 24 plus years, March 1996 to October 2020. Consider this key passage in the letter. Quote, information and documents obtained by the committee further suggest that the Commander's concealed revenues that were owed to the NFL as part of a revenue sharing agreement that redistributes revenues to 32 teams in the league and helps set salaries for the league's football players. According to the former executive, okay, now that's presumably Jason Friedman, the team maintained two sets of books, one that was shared with the NFL but underreported certain ticket revenue and another internal set of books that included the complete and accurate revenue and was shown to Mr. Snyder. Another former team employee, informed the committee that it was known and or rumored in the office that there was moving around of money regarding tickets and stated that she told an outside investigator hired by the Washington commanders about this issue in 2020. Documents indicate that the revenue gained by the team through these practices was known internally as juice, end quote. So a few things right there. 
Uh, more serious allegations, including two sets of books. Uh, that's a no-no. Uh, but also, we in that passage read of, quote, another former team employee, end quote, and that former team employee was referred to as she. So pretty clearly, these allegations aren't just a function of the words of Jason Friedman, although he pretty clearly is the primary source of the allegations. But also in that passage is that the team called the moving around of money regarding tickets, the juice. Uh, not Benjamin St. Juice, at least we don't think, no, but the juice. So as was once said on Saturday Night Live, and boy, does this now apply so perfectly to this situation, allegedly, uh, Dan Snyder, allegedly, likey the juice. I was wondering, can I get a little more juice for the sandwich? You like the juice, eh? <laughs> yeah, it's, you know. The juice is good, eh? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh... <laughs> I get you more juice. Okay, great, thanks. Helios, more juice for the gyro. What? For who? Right here. You like the juice, eh? Yes, Dan, you likey the juice. The juice is good. Uh, Dan allegedly likey the juice. For Dan allegedly, the juice is good. Uh, you can't make this stuff up, man. The juice, the juice is what... The team referred to part of what was going on in this alleged financial impropriety. So what this letter from the House Oversight Committee to the Federal Trade Commission ultimately does is ask the Federal Trade Commission to look into the alleged financial impropriety of the commanders. Quote, given the Federal Trade Commission's authority to investigate unfair or deceptive business practices, we are providing the information and documents uncovered by the committee for your review to determine if the commanders violated any provision of law enforced by FTC and whether further action is warranted. We request that you take any other action you deem necessary to ensure that all funds are returned to their rightful owners, and that those responsible are held accountable for their conduct, end quote. So I don't know if the House Oversight Committee is trying to pass the investigating into the commander's alleged financial impropriety off to the Federal Trade Commission, or if the House Oversight Committee is just formally alerting the FTC of the commander's alleged financial impropriety. But the main purpose of the letter is the House Oversight Committee saying to the FTC, hey, guys, uh, looky, looky at what Donny Boy's football team may have been doing. Uh, also in this letter, we get extreme detail of what the House Committee on Oversight and Reform has been told by Jason Friedman. Uh, we now know the words of the whistleblower and the content of the allegations of the whistleblower like never before. Uh, the letter says that Jason Friedman has, quote, provided the committee with information and documents indicating that the commanders routinely withheld security deposits that should have been returned to customers who had purchased multi-year season tickets for specific seats referred to as seat leases. Mr. Friedman recalled only one instance in his 24-year tenure when the commanders took affirmative steps to return the security deposits to their rightful owners. End quote. Uh, again, if true, 
What an F you to the ticket-paying Commanders fan. I mean, it seems to me like that's the kind of thing that could result in a class action lawsuit. Uh, the letter says that Dan Snyder was aware of what was going on. So that's key. You know, these allegations aren't, yeah, this stuff was happening, but Dan may or may not have been involved. No, these allegations are this stuff was happening. Dan knew what was happening. And Dan, in fact, ordered for what was happening to be happening. Quote, according to Mr. Friedman, the commanders would also improperly convert certain unclaimed security deposits into revenue for the team to use for other purposes. Mr. Friedman stated that some team executives used the term juice to describe this practice, which entailed identifying revenue to be intentionally misallocated in its accounting system and applied to unrelated events. Mr. Friedman stated that Mr. Snyder and Mitch Gershman, Mr. Friedman's former supervisor and then chief operating officer for the commanders, would specifically instruct him to, and here's where we get a direct quote from Jason Friedman, go identify security deposits that are on dormant accounts where, in my estimation, the likelihood of the customer coming forward and asking for their deposit back is as close to zero as possible, and then return the security deposit in the system and convert the credit that would then be on the customer's account into juice, end quote. So a very key passage right there. Dan Snyder allegedly knew what was going on and in fact ordered for what was going on to go on. Uh, the letter also says that Jason Friedman has told the committee that the commander's hid ticket revenue that was supposed to have been shared with the NFL. Quote, Mr. Friedman also provided information and documents indicating that commander's executives repeatedly concealed ticket sales revenue that should have been shared with the NFL. He explained that in or around 2012, as the team approached the end of a 15-year waiver of the NFL's revenue-sharing requirements, commander's executives began implementing additional business practices to conceal revenue that would become subject to revenue sharing, end quote. So just to review, these allegations from Jason Friedman include financial crimes against fans and financial crimes against the NFL. Who knows how much the NFL actually cares about the crimes against the fans? Uh, but I can tell you with certainty that the NFL cares about the crimes against the league. And by the NFL, I don't mean the commissioner, Roger Goodell. I mean the NFL owners, because the NFL owners are the people who truly run the NFL. We know that NFL owners care about their money. Uh, if you as an NFL owner have been stealing money from other NFL owners, that is a major no-no in the moral code of the NFL. Uh, I don't see how or why Dan Snyder survives if the other NFL owners believe that he has been stealing from them. Whatever reason for the other NFL owners having protected Dan goes bye-bye if he has been stealing from the other NFL owners. Uh, sexual harassment may not cross the line for the NFL owners, but stealing money from the NFL owners, I do believe, crosses the line for the NFL owners. And to that end, how about this? So Brian McCarthy, who works in public relations for the NFL, he on Tuesday told multiple media outlets via statement, quote, 
We continue to cooperate with the Oversight Committee and have provided more than 210,000 pages of documents. The NFL has engaged former SEC Chair Mary Jo White to review the serious matters raised by the committee. And quote, that's notable because it had been believed that Mary Jo White was investigating the Dan Snyder-specific allegations regarding former Redskins employee Tiffany Johnston uh, that were made during that hybrid roundtable this past February 3rd. But at least according to the statement from Brian McCarthy on Tuesday, Mary Jo White now is, in fact, looking into the alleged financial impropriety of the commanders. Uh, Now look, again, we don't know if all of these allegations are true, okay? Dan Snyder and the commanders are adamant that these allegations are not true. Uh, Congressional involvement in these uh, commander scandals remains very partisan. Democrats are for the involvement. Republicans are against the involvement. Uh, Austin Hacker, who is the Republican spokesperson for the House Committee on Oversight and Reform, put out a statement on Tuesday, quote, Democrats are attacking a private company using the claims of a disgruntled ex-employee who had limited access to the team's finances, was fired for violating team policies, and has his own history of creating a toxic workplace environment. As recently as January 2022, this employee was begging to get his job back with the team. Committee Republicans will be providing the FTC with additional context to ensure that they have the full story when evaluating the Democrats' latest letter and not just one-sided, cherry-picked information. End quote. So maybe there's more to this guy, Jason Friedman, than we know, okay? We don't know. Uh, It's also worth throwing this into the mix. Sports business insider A.J. Perez of Front Office Sports, a two-time guest of the Al Galdi podcast, he on Tuesday evening reported that at least one subpoena went out on Tuesday to somebody with knowledge of the commander's finances. So it would appear that Congress now has begun using its subpoena power in this commander's financial scandal. Uh, Again, I can't emphasize this enough. You have Dan Snyder and the commander saying one thing. You have Jason Friedman saying another thing. One side here clearly is wrong, if not outright lying. And if this guy Friedman is wrong and or is lying, then both he and Congress are going to look terrible. And Dan Snyder once again will win. Okay? However, if what Jason Friedman is alleging is true, then Jason Friedman may well go down as a Washington, D.C. sports all-time hero. Okay? Because if what Jason Friedman is alleging is true, then how and why would Dan Snyder survive this? How and why? Would Dan survive as owner of the Commanders? Again, as Bruce Allen said years ago about the state of the team, it may well be that when it comes to a coup of the Danny as owner of the Commanders, we're close. It means you're close. Yes, Brucey. Thank you. Uh, up next, we talk actual Commanders football. Hey, uh, uh, imagine that. Uh, I will welcome on Commanders insider Ben Standig of The Athletic. We will assess the state of the Commanders roster as we approach the 2022 NFL Draft. What are the strengths 
of the commander's roster? What are the concerns with the commander's roster? What should be the thinking for the commanders with the number 11 pick in the 2022 draft? We'll get to all of that and more after this. All right, so we're all busy and we're all dealing with inflation, but we all need to eat and we all want to eat food that tastes good and is good for you. And so that's why you should try HelloFresh. HelloFresh is great. Uh, With HelloFresh, you get farm fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your home and at an affordable price. Ingredients travel from the farm to your doorstep in under a week, so they always arrive fresh, all without a trip to the grocery store or to the farmer's market. You see, HelloFresh is all about convenience. Not only do the ingredients come pre-portioned so you're not overbuying or wasting food, but HelloFresh makes it easy to get filling meals on the table quickly. So stop wasting your time worrying about when you're going to buy food and what you're going to buy and what you should make and what the kids will eat. Try HelloFresh. We've tried HelloFresh and we love it. Uh, Just this month, we've had saucy pork burrito bowls, Italian chicken, and Southwest beef with pasta. All of it has been outstanding and healthy. And my four-year-old son, who never wants to eat what we give him, eats HelloFresh. That's the ultimate endorsement. Trust me. Also, HelloFresh will work with you. You can pick your favorite meals from 50 different weekly options. You can customize meals. You can skip weeks when needed. You can change your delivery date all on the HelloFresh app. So here's what you do. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Galdi16 and use the code Galdi16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. Again, that's HelloFresh.com slash Galdi16. Use the code Galdi16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. One more time, HelloFresh.com slash Galdi16. Use the code Galdi16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
All right, so the 2022 NFL Draft is coming. Uh, this episode of the Al Galdi Podcast is for Wednesday, April 13th. The first round of the 2022 Draft will take place Thursday night, April 28th. Commanders have the number 11 pick in the 2022 Draft. What is the state of their roster going into the Draft, given what has transpired with them in free agency and trade so far this offseason? I'm very pleased to welcome back to the podcast, Commander's Insider, Ben Standing of The Athletic. You can follow him on Twitter, at Ben Standing. And what we're going to do right now is part one of a two-part series that will extend onto his podcast, the Standing Room Only podcast. So in this part one, we're going to examine the state of the Commander's roster. And then in part two on Ben's pod, we'll explore some potential solutions for the inevitable concerns with the roster. You know, Ben, this is like back in the day when television sitcoms did special two-part episodes, you know, like a very special different stroke. So I hope you're ready to live up to that tradition. Uh, well, I'm not ready to weep or or, or, or or talk about some really personal stuff. I'm ready to discuss my concerns with like defensive line depth, but uh, I don't know if I'm ready to go to childhood trauma. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't know who's Arnold and who's Willis. We can figure that out uh, after our conversation here. But uh, all right. So I guess we'll start with the commander's offense. And, you know, to me, when you look at offense in today's NFL, right, it's like there's quarterback and then there's everything else. Uh, I'll get to the everything else shortly, but... At quarterback, so the commanders right now, of course, have Carson Wentz and Taylor Heineke. You've been writing and talking about this a bunch. Every indication seems to be that the team will not be taking a quarterback in the first round of the draft. The belief is that the commanders aren't bringing any quarterbacks to the team facility for a top 30 visit. Do you expect the commanders to take a quarterback at some point in the draft? At some point, it wouldn't surprise me. I go back to a conversation I had with Ron Rivera before the combine, so before Carson Wentz became a member of the team, and he told me the composition of the of the quarterback room would probably be two veterans and a rookie. Now, maybe at that point, he was thinking quarterback at eleven or in the second round, and then Taylor Heineke and you know somebody else. Um, now, obviously, it's different. Now, Carson Wentz, just purely for this season, Carson Wentz, Taylor Heineke, pretty good. You know, I mean, as a combination, you feel pretty good about that. And you can always do the, you know, sign the Steven Montez type guy to be on the roster. Or maybe there's a, you know, a, a Kyle allen type, you know, deep veteran or the Taylor Heineke to be the third guy. You know, you could always um, do that. But I'm still going with the idea that they would draft the quarterback because it's a really important position. And if you're Ron Rivera, the last two years you've constantly had to go deep into your starting quarterback pool. They had to use even, I mean, even last year, like it, on the one hand, we know Fitzpatrick got hurt immediately, but Taylor Heineke basically played all year. They still had to use four quarterbacks last year. So like you need the other guy at some point. So I, I would just imagine, I'm going to guess they would. Um, my caveat would be, as we'll discuss, they've got a lot of holes now on this roster. And do you want to use one, even if it's the seventh round on a quarterback who ideally never plays versus say your offensive lineman who actually might play because that's a position where injuries happen and you have to throw guys in that, that type of thing. I think that's probably the debate I would guess. When it comes to the commanders potentially taking a quarterback in say the second round, uh, you know how to do mock drafts. Ben Standing, for those of you who do not know, two-time winner of the Huddle Reports annual NFL mock draft contest. How many quarterbacks do you think will go in the first round of the 2022 draft? So um, I'll caveat all my draft comments with this. And I, I, 
I did a Washington-only mock draft up on The Athletic, and I kind of led with however many years I've been doing mock drafts, this feels to me the weirdest of the top tens I can recall. Al, you're, you're, you're like myself, you're not a, you know, you're not a 20 something here. No, 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 you know, you're, you're, you're a good age. Uh, when we did the SATs and you signed your name, you automatically got like 400 points. That's kind of how it's, the mock drafts has always felt to me. Like you kind of know, okay, maybe the first three picks and then picks five is going to take an offensive tackle. And then that wide receiver is going to go to pick nine. And I got like five to eight. I feel really good about it, and then we'll figure out the rest. I, I don't know what I have here at all. I guess I think Aiden Hutchinson goes one, and then after that, you could talk me into a lot of things, and this is where the quarterbacks come into play. There are some people who are adamantly saying multiple quarterbacks go in the top ten. You see mock drafts with Malik Willis going second to Detroit, and then you still have people simultaneously saying that none of these quarterbacks, based on talent, are worth a first-round pick. And we get quarterbacks get bumped up. I guess right now, if you said the over/under was one, it was a half quarterback picked in the top ten. I guess I would take over because there's three teams: Carolina, Atlanta, Seattle, and I guess you could say Detroit. I just can't see it at two. That could take one. So I get. I I, I guess my, my basic answers have been three quarterbacks in round one because I mean I just these guys are just not. I don't know. They just don't seem to be. That great. I mean, you need one, but just take them later. Then I, I, I don't know. So I, I guess I would probably guess three, but you could talk me into nobody in the top ten, or maybe just one in the first round because I do feel it's kind of like all over the place. Yeah, the projections for this 2022 NFL draft are all over the place. A lot of variance regarding where the quarterbacks will go with the rest of the commander's offense out of the remaining four position groups. So offensive line, receivers, tight ends, and running backs. Which position group to you is the most concerning for the commanders right now? Good question. I mean, tight end is the one that's the most uncertain because Logan Thomas is the only one they have that you feel pretty good about if you had to start over the course of a season. And we don't know exactly his timeline. I mean, just based on standard recovery time he should be back by week one uh, but will he be back for the start of training camp and be ready to go in week one in a full-throated kind of a way that's to be debated if he's not like i thought john bates did a reasonable job last year but are we ready to say john bates is that guy plus there is no more ricky seals jones right now and of course they haven't added anyone else so i'm a little concerned there but if you tell me logan thomas is back then i'm less concerned if bates is the two and we'll see what samus reyes develops into i, I still would imagine they add somebody else but I'm, I'm imagining they had a lot of other people that not, hasn't, have, has not happened yet. That said, I mean, the other groups, I think you can argue, not argue, they, they're, they're offensive line is taking a hit backwards. I mean, taking a hit, right? I mean, you lose Brandon Sheriff. Wes Schweitzer can be a totally fine player, but he's not a five-time pro bowler. I'll assume that Nor- Eric Norvell, um, Eric Flowers thing is something of a, uh, you know, e- e- equal swap. But then we talk about the playmakers. I think we all kind of recognize they still probably need another guy. But at, as it stands, receiver and running backs, they're probably good enough if they run it back with the same group. You know, maybe just add somebody else for depth. So I guess I would say tight end without knowing Logan Thomas' situation, followed by the offensive line. Yeah, I got to tell you, I am not a fan of this talk of like Ron Rivera needs to add or should add an offensive weapon for Carson Wentz with that number 11 pick from a standpoint of. You should never force the selection of a specific position with a pick. Like to me, 
I think by and large, you do best player available. I mean, I think there's some wiggle room with that. But like this idea of like, no, you have to go receiver at 11. Like, no, I don't think you have to do anything. You know, I, I think that's how you get into trouble in the NFL draft is when you get locked in on having to address a specific position with a specific pick. But do you think that Ron may be looking at this as, yeah, uh, I should be adding an offensive skill position player for Carson Wentz at 11? So on the one hand, you know, you are the master of taking the audio that Ron Rivera and others say and then using it to project what might happen because these are the words of the people that speak. So we should take what they say seriously. I, having listening to Ron Rivera enough, go, eh, on the one hand, you told me Joe Gibbs wants, wants tall quarterbacks, but you try to get Russell Wilson. So I don't <laughs> always know what to make of anything anybody says anymore. Okay, that said, at the owners' meeting, he spoke to Julie Donaldson, and he said, she asked him, basically, you got the quarterback, now what? What's the big thing? And he went into, well, now we have to help the quarterback. We need to make sure we have protection for him, and we need to make sure he has weapons for him. That's our sort of next big thing. Now, does that mean that's what they plan to do at 11? I, I don't know, but I mean, that's kind of partly all the evidence that we that, that we have right now. And if you look at the board, I know we'll talk more about this tomorrow, but like the receiver is a pretty obvious point there. It feels like without knowing who will be there, there will be a receiver there that could be a pretty good addition if they want to go that route. So that's, I can feel comfortable saying that far more than I can Interior offensive line doesn't look like a thing at 11. Um, no tight ends in the first round. No running backs probably in the first round. Uh, so, you know, and even on even on defense, probably cornerback would be the only other position unless a guy like Kyle Hamilton slips. So uh, whether, whether he's saying that because he believes it or he's already kind of projecting how he sees the board, it wouldn't stun me at receiver. But I'm with you. I don't think... I don't think you need to force it at 11. I would totally agree with that. We are exploring the state of the Commander's roster heading into the 2022 NFL Draft with Commander's insider Ben Standing of The Athletic. Uh, Let's get to the defense. Start with the defensive line. So we have Chase Young coming off a torn right ACL. We have Chase and Montez Sweat coming off disappointing seasons. We have the Commander's depth at interior defensive lineman having been zapped by the free agent defection of Tim Settle and the releasing of Matt Ioannidis. Is the defensive line still a strength or is the defensive line now more of a concern? Yeah, I don't know if it's a concern, but it's hard to sit here and go it's a strength. Now, again, if this was the NBA, right, having those four guys in your rotation, like, okay, that's pretty good. We, we feel really good about our whatever. But that's not exactly how this works. They don't play 100% of the snaps, right? They do take breaks. And I think, you know, you could probably point to last year, I haven't done this math, maybe maybe you have, but like in games in which those guys played their highest percentage of snaps, what level of effectiveness were they still into the second half versus the games that they they weren't? We can talk about maybe more about this at some point with why I think running back is something that they're looking to get. I think it connects to all of this. But the point would be, you had guys to swap out, particularly for Allen and Payne last year. That's gone. They already We already knew last year they didn't have anybody to replace Montez Sweat and Chase Young easily. I think James Smith-Williams and Casey Tuhill, all things being equal, did a pretty reasonable job when thrust into the starting lineup. Um, in fact, sometimes I thought they were doing a quasi-better job because they were staying within the game plan that allowed every all 11 players to sort of work a little maybe coherently than had been happening before. So... We'll see 
um, about that. But yeah, I agree. I don't think this is, I think there's definitely questions. I mean, Daniel Wise was somebody I think did some good things last year for them. And maybe they think he, they won't miss the Tim Settle component much at all. And granted, Tim Settle didn't even play a ton last year because those guys weren't getting hurt. But I think there's still pretty clear, definite questions. Like, is there another edge rusher on this team? What happens if Allen or Payne misses time? Or what if you just want to give them more rest because they were less effective? I, don't, I think there are definitely a lot of questions on both of those fronts. By the way, with Deron Payne, do you anticipate the commander signing him to a contract extension this offseason? Obviously, we've had so much Terry McLaurin contract extension talk, maybe not as much Payne extension talk. What do you think is going to happen contractually with Payne? I don't know. And I say that with um, a lot of um, – I'm not saying that with – I don't know, like, uh, <laughs> like, like I don't have a clue. I'm kind of saying it like – you got to see how all these pieces come together, right? I mean, before they signed Carson Wentz, going back a year at this point, I've been saying, I don't think how from an asset allocation standpoint, it makes any sense to, to extend all four of these defensive linemen. At some point, you're getting a quarterback. Now, it was conceivable they draft a quarterback at 11 before Carson Wentz. And if you have the rookie contract on your books, then maybe you can get away with it for a little bit. But if you added any kind of veteran for any kind of money, no. It's not conceivable. Well, they added the quarterback with the veteran. We heard Ron Rivera say part of the reason they're not doing much is because they had to reset after taking on Wentz. Okay, well, if you're about to give Terry McLaurin a big big contract, now that would be money going that would hit the books next year. You still have to account for it, right? If you're signing Jerron Payne to a, a, an extension, that means another huge contract. Let's just say he gets the same deal Jonathan Allen got, which was a four-year, seventy-two million. That's the funny money numbers, but we'll you know start with that. Now that's two defensive linemen you've just added in the last year with that kind of money, plus McLaurin, plus Wentz. How are you affording everything else? And then Chase Young and Montez Sweater coming up the next couple of years. So I, I, I do think it's a question as to what they plan to do because they are claiming they had to reset after Carson Wentz, which, to be honest, I don't understand why they had to make a big deal. You, you try to get Russell Wilson, same thing, but okay. Um, so I do wonder what their plan is there. And here's the other component. If they had kept Ionitis or Saddle, it would be easier to even say, look, I think they're going to probably trade Deron Payne because they have some depth. Well, now they don't have any depth. So if you if you, if you you don't give Deron Payne an extension, maybe you let him walk after this year or let him test free agency, then um, you, we'll, we'll see. But I, I don't know. I think they would like to keep him because he's a good player. But at some point, how are you paying everybody? Yeah, I also don't think that he's worth Jonathan Allen money even though he may want Jonathan Allen money. So I think that could complicate things, that he may want a number that the team shouldn't be giving him. So uh, that's going to be interesting. I mean, to me, if you're not going to sign him long-term, it's like we've talked about with Brandon Sheriff. It's like we talked about a years ago with Kirk Cousins, and you need to trade him. You know, if you're going to get into this franchise tag game again, you know, no thank you. Like, either lock him up or trade him. It's one extreme to me or the other. Uh, linebacker. So, so much talk about Mike linebacker, right? Who's going to be the Mike linebacker? And yet the commanders this offseason have done oh so little at linebacker. Uh, both Ron Rivera and Martin Mayhew at the NFL's annual league meeting in lovely Palm Beach, Florida last month told you and others that Cole Holcomb might be the Mike linebacker. So in other words, the Mike linebacker might already be on the team. Uh, we know that the team last season so infrequently had three linebackers on the field. So do you view linebacker as a valid concern or as an overrated concern? 
let, let's take them at their word that Cole Holcomb is a viable option as the Mike linebacker. And let's even say Jamin Davis reasonably makes improvements just based on another year of being on this planet and growth that he put in the work this offseason. Let's just even say that's the case. Well, that's still only two, right? They, they start their base starts with three. I know last year we can point to the numbers that say they didn't use three linebackers that often. Well, that's pretty circumstantial to me. I mean, John Bostick got hurt in week four, and then they replaced him with a non-linebacker in Landon Collins, basically, right? And we saw that, like, even when later in the year when, when injuries happened and when the COVID situation was happening, it's not like they went to Khalid Hudson, right? I mean, David Mayo played a little bit. And, okay, fine, but a guy that basically didn't use up until that point. So to me, at a minimum, they've got to add at least one, if not two other linebackers just for depth. Forget starting. Now the question of, well, wait a minute, are you really going to trust that Jamin Davis has taken that step? Do you actually believe that Cole Holcomb is that guy? I mean, I, I you know, Ron Rivera's trying to tell us that they've watched more tape, they did more thinking, and they think Cole Holcomb's good enough. I might have, I mean, I'm, I, I might agree with that, but that's not what his view was at the end of the year when he was saying that he needed another one. So, you know, it's possible. You know, my sense is that they've tried to look at some other linebackers, and for whatever reason, things just haven't worked out. There is the draft upcoming, of course, and, you know, day one, day two, you could absolutely get somebody there. So that may be what they do. And there's still free agent linebackers out there. You know, AJ Klein, Joe Schobert, a couple guys, just some other names as well. So I think that's, I don't think it's an overrated concern. I think the only way it's, it's overrated is if Jamin Davis is ready to take a leap. Not saying he has to turn into Lawrence Taylor. I just mean take a leap to being a guy you can keep on the field for basically 100% of the plays. And that based on that with Cole Holcomb, they feel good enough. But I would, I'm not there yet. And at a minimum, they got to get more depth, I would think. The commander secondary to me is really interesting because you can look at it in a variety of ways. I mean, if you look at the overall numbers, you're not impressed. If you look at the play during the two and six start to last season, you're not impressed. On the other hand, if you look at the play for the bulk of the second half of the season, there are things to like. And I just think if you look at who the commanders have in their secondary, there is talent there. Uh, to me, the concern really is depth at corner. But as you like, take a step back and just look at the commander's defensive backs as a whole, what do you think is the right way of looking at what the commanders have in their secondary? So I think at a base level, right, if this is the old school days, you know, two corners, two safeties, that's kind of the kind of the defense. You know, I think they seem relatively set. I mean, I know William Jackson didn't exactly crush it last year, but okay, on the surface, he's a, let's just assume that a, a year into the system with Del Rio, they kind of figure some things out. Kendall Fuller had a pretty good year last year, I think. I mean, Cam Curl is, um, you know, not trying to make him into be the next great safety, but he you know, was pretty pretty reasonable. And, you know, Bobby McCain was about as solid as they've had at free safety in years, right? So that seems reasonable. But who's the fifth defensive back? They do use sub-package the, the, the majority of the time. Uh, Benjamin St. Juice maybe is that guy, but that's sort of complicated in that, I mean, forget the fact that he missed a bunch of time because of a concussion last year. He's an outside corner. I think so. If you're, what are you going to do? You're moving Kendall Fuller inside? I, I don't. I mean, I keep, oddly, I thought Kendall Fuller was better outside last year than he was in the slot. And he's also the uh, the idea of what a slot corner is these days seems different than a couple years ago when we were viewing Kendall Fuller as maybe more of a slot. So it feels like they need that other player to come in. Um, but then on top of it, again, look at the depth. <laughs> no, no. Who who is behind them on at safety now? You know. 
obviously unfortunate circumstances with the Shazer effort, but he was a guy you could kind of plug in. He's he's gone. Landon Collins, whatever he was, at least he could help you in some capacities. He's gone. I have no idea if Derek Forrest is anything more than a special teams player. Troy App, he certainly isn't. I mean, he's a corner these days. Um, Jeremy Reeves, you know, I get it. He's a fan favorite, but he's never been able to get past the practice squad, basically, level his whole time. So I think they need more safety at a minimum, let alone whether that guy is the fifth defensive back most of the time or not. So there's definitely more to do, yet at a base level, it's not in a bad shape of the top four. Yeah, I agree with you on that. In terms of the commanders potentially taking a corner with their number 11 pick in the 2022 draft, uh, arguably slash probably the top two corners in the draft, Ahmad Sauce Gardner of Cincinnati, Derek Stingley Jr. of LSU, do you think that both guys might be available at 11? Do you think that only one of the two will be available at 11? Do you think that neither guy will be available at 11? It feels like Gardner will be a top 10. I, again, when I did my mock draft the other day, I tried to do the math as to what I get it. You know, <laughs> sometimes I see these things. I'm like, they're going to take this guy at 11 without explaining what happened before. And so I tried to explain that and basically not in terms of which player to which team, but which players are most likely to go top 10. I think Gardner is one of the more likely guys to go top 10, even though it's, as I said earlier, it's a bit of a chaotic projection, I think, at this point. Stingley, I feel it's a little more up in the air. I would probably guess he would be there. He obviously only just had his pro day last week, which was important for him because he's missed a bunch of time the last two seasons with injuries. He's been dealing with a Liz Frank injury, but he was, as a freshman, was one of, one of if not the best cornerback in college football, so there, and he's, he, he really tested well at his pro day. So there's a lot of reasons to like him. I think there's maybe some question about the fit. He's more of a man guy than a zone guy. You know, we just went through this with William Jackson, but maybe it's not a big deal. You know, that that that's more for the football uh, experts to figure out. So I think I think he's probably there, maybe Gardner, but I kind of doubt it. If they're both gone, you still have a guy like Trent McDuffie from Washington, who's projected sort of like a few picks later in that 15 to 18 range. So, you know, if you want a cornerback, it's not like it makes much of a difference. Just go take them. So I think they should have a, they shouldn't have an issue getting a cornerback if they want one. Um, I just don't know if I feel that great about Gardner being there. And he's the one that I think everybody's most interested in. I want to ask you about something that Ron Rivera said to you. You had this in a recent piece for the athletic. It has to do with why the commanders haven't done more in free agency quote, really to me, you have to get past the draft before you can start doing those things. Because if you get a certain guy and you spend a lot of money on it, and then all of a sudden you draft that position, now what happens? We're trying to be very thoughtful as we go through this, and quote. Now, you know, on the surface, that does make some sense. But of course, free agency begins a month and a half before the draft. And you know, it's not like last year the commanders, uh, then the Washington football team, waited until the draft uh, was over to do stuff in free agency, right? We saw the team last year aggressively go after Ryan Fitzpatrick and William Jackson the third and Curtis Samuel. You know, this idea of not waiting to get aggressive in free agency until after the draft, when obviously so many of the top free agents are gone. What did you make of what Ron said to you there? Look, it's confusing. I mean, it's already been, I mean, even now the draft is still over two weeks away. So when he said that, it was, you know, 10 days ago or so. I've lost track of time, but whatever, 10 or 12 days ago. Um, so you're like, oh, wait, you're going to, your plan is to wait 
I get it. Last year, you got Charles Leno after the draft, but you didn't know he wasn't even available at that point. He was released. That said, there's a lot of free agents who are still on the board. Washington, last I looked, only Dallas had signed as few external free agents as Washington, which is two. Of course, both of Washington's had previous ties to Rivera from Carolina, so they really haven't signed a single player who either wasn't here last year or had no ties to Rivera. But that said, like, Part of me kind of wonders, did he say this, the actual strategy out loud? And not just sort of for Washington, but for a lot of other teams. Because part of what he was saying is like, you don't want to block, uh, if you sign a player, man, now all of a sudden maybe you're blocking yourself from drafting a player at that position because you've just sort of filled in that gap and you'd rather wait and see. Okay, I get it to a degree, but then you're missing out on players and then what if you don't go down that route? But if you've gotten this far... It probably does feel like a lot of these free agents are still going to be there once we get past the draft. So I guess that now that they've made it this far, and it's still relatively quiet out there in free agency, it does feel like that is, in fact, what their plan is, and other teams may have the same approach. I think it's just further squeezing of the middle class of, of NFL players. We see this more happening more and more every year. This seems to be sort of the extreme version uh, based on how many guys are still out there. But um yeah, I guess that's what they're going to do. To, to tie it into the mock draft and however we just look at this team, there are just so many holes. Go do something. Like if you want to tell me they want a receiver at 11, fine, but then go get a linebacker. Go get the fifth defensive back already. And I know it's not just the first round, but they only have two picks in the top, what, one, 100 and something? Like 100, certainly the top 100. Those are the only two picks I'm going to assume will help next year. Everybody else, is, if it happens, great. So you can only get... Two players, one receiver, one defensive back. Now what? What about your linebacker? What about your extra defensive lineman? What about your offensive lineman? Do you want another running back? Like, the, who's the tight end? Like, the, you need to get more guys. There's going to have to be veterans added. They're just not doing it yet. So I guess we're going to have to wait. And I guess we're going to wait until after the draft. Yeah, I mean, I think trying to do free agency in a bargain shopping like way makes a lot of sense and we have seen the team with Ron Rivera these last two off seasons have success with bargain basement shopping but what's odd is the team went out of its way to generate salary cap space by releasing Eric Flowers and Matt Ioannidis and Landon Collins and DeShazer Everett and yet hasn't done much with that space other than sign Andrew Norwell and a few other moves so it's just kind of like, okay, what changed or why were those guys – like, why was Matt Ioannidis released if he didn't have to be released? Like, that, you know, I'm still trying to understand that. And there's the Landon Collins money that's going to kick in um, June post-June 1. Okay. I, I mean, yeah. So there's that too. So there's going to be even more money. I, I think part of that is connected to Terry McLaurin and things like that. But, again, that's – not that's for next. His money is next year, not necessarily this year. So, yeah, I, I mean, Deron Payne could be this year if that's the thing. Yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's confusing. And like I, you know, I've tried to give them benefit of the doubt. When we were at the owners' meeting, I said, I asked Martin Mayhew, I'm like, you know, people ask us grade this off season, you know, because that's what people like to know. And I tell them, I told Mayhew, I'm like, look, I kind of just give you guys an incomplete because I don't know what else to say. You got a quarterback, but now you seemingly have more holes. What would you say? And he goes, like, hey. We don't have to do it, you know, we have until basically September to, to figure all this out, which isn't wrong. It's just the, the longer you wait, the fewer play. When people talk about waiting, I'm less, much less concerned about waiting on Terry McLaurin's contract than I am waiting to fill out the roster. 
because at some point the pool gets picked over and you don't want to just be picking up relative scraps, you know, for all the JD McKissick and Logan Thomas and Ronald Darby stuff, all those moves were done by now. These weren't being done in July. So, um, we'll see. I mean, again, until it's all done, it's hard to get overly worked up at this one way or the other. It's just confusing what is taking so long. All right, Ben, thank you very much for your time. Everyone listening, make sure that you check out Ben's work covering the commanders for The Athletic. He does an excellent job. You can follow Ben on Twitter at Ben Standing. And Ben, I will be up all night preparing for my appearance on your podcast, the Standing Room Only podcast for part two of our conversation. Look, the, the, the tough challenge is me. I have to follow your pipes <laughs> as the host now. This is going to be much more complicated for me. So wish me luck on that front. Well, the Capitals, my friends, are rolling. Uh, this is a beautiful thing to see. The NHL's 2021-2022 regular season is winding down. The Caps are going to be making the Stanley Cup playoffs. We've known that for a while, but the Caps are playing their best hockey of the season as we approach the Stanley Cup playoffs. Uh, the Caps on Tuesday night annihilated the Philadelphia Flyers 9-2 at Capital One Arena. Yes, the final score of the game was 9-2. Uh, the Caps' nine goals were a season high. Uh, this was a blowout, a rout, a pasting, a polaxing. Uh, call it what you want, but the Caps dominated the Flyers. And it's not just that. This was the Caps' fourth consecutive win, matching a season high for the Caps. But it's not just that. Uh, the Caps' First three wins in this four-game winning streak were all big wins in that the wins came over teams ahead of the Caps in the Eastern Conference standings. Uh, last Wednesday night, a 4-3 win over the Tampa Bay Lightning at Capital One Arena. This past Saturday afternoon, a 6-3 win at the Pittsburgh Penguins. This past Sunday afternoon, a 4-2 win over the Boston Bruins at Capital One Arena. So this four-game winning streak has not just been a function of playing a bunch of patsies here. The Caps have had some very significant victories here lately. And keep in mind that the Caps' four-game winning streak came off the Caps having been brutal in each of their previous two games. March 28th, a 6-1 loss to the Carolina Hurricanes at Capital One Arena. April 3rd, a 5-1 loss to the Minnesota Wild at Capital One Arena. Uh, and this game on Tuesday night was the Caps' final game before a five-game road trip. Uh, quite the way to enter a road trip uh, with a four-game winning streak during which the Caps have outscored opponents 23-10. Uh, here was Caps head coach Peter Laviolette during his post-game press conference on Tuesday night on this 9-2 win over the Flyers at Capital One Arena. I thought it was a I, I thought I thought the guys guys did a good job coming out and playing strong at the beginning. Um, you know, Philadelphia is still a good hockey team, and if you don't prepare to do the right things, and oftentimes you don't, and so it was one of those catch games where you got three teams that are in the top of the league, and you look at the standings, but you know they're still a good team, and so I thought the response right at the beginning and coming out and playing the game hard was good. Yes, it was good. Uh, also on Tuesday night, the Boston Bruins lost at home to the St. Louis Blues 4-2. The New York Islanders beat the Pittsburgh Penguins 5-4 in a shootout. So the Caps this season now are 41-22-10 and have 92 points. Uh, the Caps now are just three points behind the Bruins for the 
top wildcard spot in the Eastern Conference. The Caps are 15 points ahead of the Islanders for the second wildcard spot in the Eastern Conference. The top two wildcard teams in each conference will make the Stanley Cup playoffs. So the Caps are a virtual lock to make the playoffs 15 points ahead of the Islanders. And the Caps have nine regular season games left. The Islanders have 10 regular season games left. And the Caps now are just three points behind the Penguins for third in the Metropolitan Division. Uh, The Caps on Tuesday night ripped the Flyers 9-2, despite the Caps being without one of their best defensemen. Uh, Dmitry Orloff did not play due to a lower body injury. Forward Carl Haglin remains out indefinitely off having undergone left eye surgery on March 1st. Forward Joe Snively remains out due to a left wrist injury. But nine goals for the Caps on Tuesday night. 16 of the Caps, 18 active forwards and defensemen each recorded at least a point. Uh, This marked just the fifth regular season game in Caps history in which 16 of the team's 18 active forwards and defensemen in the game each recorded at least a point. And the previous time was all the way back in January 2010. So we on Tuesday night had something with the Caps that we had not had since January 2010. You know, it's not like the Caps scored, say, a bunch of power play goals on Tuesday night. Caps went one of four on the power play. Uh, Each of the Caps' first eight goals in the game was an even strength goal. Uh, It was Johan Larson who had the power play goal, a third period power play goal for his first goal as a Cap. Uh, The Caps on Tuesday night were terrific in terms of puck possession. Caps per natural stat trick had 50 five-on-five shot attempts to the Flyers' 38, including 13 5-on-5 high-danger shot attempts to the Flyers' 7. How about shots on goal? Caps totaled 37 shots on goal to the Flyers' 21. Uh, We on Tuesday night had yet another good game for Alex Ovechkin. He had the Caps' first goal, what was a first-period even-strength goal, and a secondary assist. Ovechkin also had a game-high 11 shot attempts. Uh, Ovechkin's goal, his 131st career regular season game-opening goal. Yes, that is a thing. Game-opening goals. Ovi now, 131 career regular season game-opening goals, tied with Brett Hull for the second-most regular season game opening goals in NHL history. X-Cap Yaramir Yager is number one with 135 career regular season game opening goals. So the goal for Ovechkin on Tuesday night, yet another milestone goal for him. Uh, Ovechkin's goal, his 14th goal in 18 games. Ovechkin's goal, his 46th goal of this season, moving him to within four goals of an NHL record tying ninth 50 goal regular season. Uh, Also on Tuesday night, Lars Eller had two even strength goals and a game high five shots on goal. Defenseman Justin Schultz had three primary assists in the third period. Uh, You don't see that often. Three assists, let alone three primary assists by a defenseman in a single period. But it was that kind of night for the Caps in this 9-2 win over the Flyers at Capital One Arena uh, with the Caps goaltending. So Ilya Samsonov on Tuesday night was the Caps starting goaltender for a third time in four games. He stopped 19 of the 21 shots on goal that he faced. Uh, Samsonov per natural stat trick stopped four of the six high danger shots on goal that he faced. But note, Samsonov only gave up two goals. Uh, That is so rare right now. The Caps only giving up 
two goals in a game. In fact, the Caps now have allowed two goals or less in a game in each of two consecutive games for the first time since wins on March 3rd and March 5th. Yeah, more than a month ago was the last time the Caps had back-to-back games in which the Caps in each game gave up two goals or less. Uh, Peter Laviolette during his post-game press conference on Tuesday night on the Caps' recent defensive play. You know, I've never, even oftentimes in the games that, um, you know, prior to these four, we were giving up some goals. I don't, sometimes it's it's defensive zone coverage, but for the most part, we've been pretty tight defensively in our zone, in defensive zone. It's been, it's been good, you know, and um, it goes back to, for me, the transition of the neutral zone and whether or not you're chasing down odd man rushes or whether you're outnumbered or um, that, that puck possession for me has just been really good in the last four games. And not only does it lead to offenses, as you were talking about, but it also leads to less scoring chances, less shots on net, less time in your zone. And so um, it, it, it has a, you know, it's a two-headed two-headed monster. It leads you to offense and it takes you away from defense. Yeah, Caps went 1-2 on the penalty kill. So next up for the Caps is this five-game road trip, and the road trip will begin with a stiff test. The Caps will be at the Toronto Maple Leafs Thursday night at 7. Now, the Leafs on Tuesday night did lose at home to the lowly Buffalo Sabres 5-2, but the Leafs this season have 100 points and are 26-8-2 at home. So another good matchup here for the Caps in terms of an opportunity to beat one of the best teams in the Eastern Conference. So the Capitals on Tuesday night won in blowout fashion. The Nationals on Tuesday night lost in blowout fashion. And this was off the Nats on Monday night having won in blowout fashion. Uh, The Nats fell to two and four with a 16-4 loss at the Atlanta Braves on Tuesday night. This off an 11-2 win at the Braves on Monday night. Uh, Disappointing game for the Nats on Monday night. Patrick Corbin was atrocious. I mean, that's where you start. Uh, Biggest item in the game by far was Corbin struggling. Uh, Remember, Patrick Corbin was the Nats' opening game starter. He, in theory, is their number one starting pitcher right now. He also, in reality... It's coming off back-to-back really bad seasons, including for the 2021 regular season, having had the single worst ERA among all qualified pitchers in the majors at 582. And Patrick Corbin on Tuesday night was terrible. Uh, Six runs in two and two-thirds innings. I mean, Tuesday night was right back to 2021, okay? This is what we saw from Corbin way too often last season. Corbin on Tuesday night, six runs in two and two-thirds innings. He gave up nine hits, three doubles, and six singles. He issued three walks. He recorded three strikeouts. How about this? He threw an astounding 83 pitches over his two and two-thirds innings. 83 pitches over two and two-thirds innings. That's absurd. Uh, Now, Corbett did toss a scoreless bottom of the first, but then the problems began. Uh, Corbett allowed three runs in the bottom of the second, during which the big blows were a one-out RBI double by Guillermo Heredia and a two-out, two-run double by Ozzie Albies. And Corbett, after that, issued a two-out, 
Six-pitch walk of Matt Olson. Corbin allowed three runs in the bottom of the third before getting pulled with two outs. Uh, Corbin gave up a leadoff double to Marcelo Zuna, despite him having been down in the count at 1.02. Corbin gave up a single to Travis Darno. Corbin gave up a two-run single to Adam Duvall, on which Victor Robles committed a fielding error as the baseball got by Victor and went all the way to the outfield wall. That was ugly. Uh, Corbin gave up a two-out RBI single to Orlando Arcia. Corbin gave up a two-out single to Ozzie Albies. Corbin issued a two-out six-pitch walk of Matt Olson, And then Corbin, mercifully, got pulled from the game. So here we are again. Patrick Corbin in a third consecutive season having problems. Now, look, this is only a second start of this season, so let's give the guy more of a shot before we say this is a third consecutive oh-so-bad season for Corbin. But to me, at this point, Corbin does not get the benefit of the doubt, okay? I mean, Corbin right now, at this point in his career, is a bad pitcher until proven otherwise. And he was really bad on Tuesday night. Uh, Remember, this is season four of a six-year, $140 million contract to which the Nats signed Corbin as a free agent in December 2018. Uh, Also bad on Tuesday night for the Nats was their relief pitching. And notice that I said relief pitching, not bullpen. Uh, Three Nats relievers combined to allow 10 runs, nine earned in five and a third innings on Tuesday night. Those relievers were actual relief pitchers, Austin Voth and Paolo Espino, and outfielder, D. Strange Gordon. Uh, yes, this game became a clown show in which a position player pitched. Uh, Austin Voth allowed four runs, three earned in one and a third innings. He, in the bottom of the fourth, allowed four runs, three earned on a leadoff homer by Marcelo Zuna, a one-out full count RBI double by Dansby Swanson, a one-out RBI single by Orlando Arcia, despite him having been down in the count at 1.12, and then a bizarro play, uh, a run-scoring ground out by Ozzie Albies on a play on which we had an interference error by catcher Kate Barrett Ruiz, and two separate lengthy rundowns on which the Nats didn't get any outs. Uh, this sequence was amateur hour. The only out on the play was Josh Bell stepping on first base of catching the ground ball. If you watch this game, or at least watch this play, you know of what I speak. Uh, This play was whacked out, man, and not in a good way. Uh, But Austin Voth struggled. Paolo Espino struggled. He allowed three runs in three innings. And then we got the D-Strange Gordon show. And this really was embarrassing. I mean, I'm all for having fun, okay? This, to me, was more on the side of pathetic as opposed to fun. D-Strange Gordon allowed three runs in a bottom of the eighth that was batting practice, okay? We, at one point in the bottom of the eighth, had Ozzy Albies smashing a one-out solo homer on a 58.5 mile-per-hour changeup from D-Strange Gordon, or at least that's how the pitch registered as a changeup. I mean, 58.5 miles per hour. Like, really? I mean, this was an insult to the game. (laughs) D-Strange Gordon's pitching on Tuesday night. Uh, As for the Nats offense, biggest bright spot was Juan Soto and Josh Bell hitting back-to-back solo homers with two outs 
in the top of the six. It was good to see that. Uh, Soto was an at starting right fielder and number two batter. He went two for three with a solo homer, a single hand to walk. Soto in the Nats, one run first, had the single. Soto in the Nats, two run sixth, a two-out solo homer on a bomb to right field to cut the Nats' deficit to 11-2. Uh, the homer was some shot when it projected 451 feet per stat cast, and the homer was the 100th regular season home run of Soto's major league career. Juan Soto, as of Tuesday night, was 23 years and 169 days old. He became the fourth youngest player to hit 100 career regular season home runs among players who have debuted in the divisional era. That's since 1969. The only players younger, Alex Rodriguez, Andrew Jones, and Miguel Cabrera. Pretty good company in which to be for Juan Soto. Uh, And then Soto, in the top of the eighth, drew a two-out five-pitch walk. Uh, Josh Bell, he was an Nats starting first baseman and number three batter on Tuesday night. He went one for four with a solo homer and going back-to-back with Soto. Uh, Bell in that two-run six, a two-out solo homer to right field to cut the Nats' deficit to 11-3. Bell also made a nice defensive play in the game. So Lucius Fox was the Nats' starting shortstop and number eight batter. Alcides Escobar did not play in the game. Uh, Alcides really has been struggling offensively. Well, Fox on Tuesday night went 0 for 4 with three strikeouts, but he made a nice backhanded catch of a grounder on the shallow left field grass and then a two-hop throw to Josh Bell, who made a nice backhanded catch of the throw on a ground out by Austin Riley in the bottom of the fifth inning. Uh, No Nelson Cruz for the Nats on Tuesday night. He was a late scratch due to a groin issue. Uh, So Yadiel Hernandez was the Nats starting DH and cleanup batter. He went one for four with a double. Uh, Kbert Ruiz had a double. He was the Nats starting catcher, number five batter, one for four with a double. Michael Franco had another multi-hit night. He was the Nats starting third baseman and was up to being the number six batter off his four-hit, five-RBI game on Monday night. Franco on Tuesday night, two for four, with a double and an RBI single. But overall, not a good night for the Nats. I mean, you lose 16-4, that's not a good night for you, all right? And we now have a quick turnaround for the Nats because Game 3 at the Braves is on Wednesday afternoon at 12-20. Intriguing pitching matchup, Josiah Gray versus Max Fried. As for the Orioles on Tuesday night, uh, they lost. They fell to 1-4 with a 5-4 loss to the Milwaukee Brewers at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Uh, I want to focus on two bright spots for the O's from this game. Uh, The first is Cedric Mullins, a second straight impact game for him. Uh, No surprise, uh, but Mullins, uh, the Orioles starting center fielder and number one batter, a grand slam on Tuesday night. He also had a double. Uh, But Mullins in the bottom of the second, a two-out grand slam to right center field on a 1-2 pitch for a 4-2 Orioles lead. It was great to see that. Uh, Mullins in the previous game, the Orioles' 2-0 win over the Brewers at Camden Yards on Monday afternoon, had a two-out two-run single in the bottom of the second for the game's only runs. Uh, The other bright spot for the O's on Tuesday night, Keegan Aiken, who for a second consecutive series shined as a reliever in Game 2 of the series. Uh, Aiken on Tuesday night tossed two and two-thirds scoreless innings in relief of starter Spencer Watkins, who, shall we say, had problems. Uh, he allowed 
Four runs, one earned in three innings on two doubles, two singles, two walks, a wild pitch, and a balk, and he committed a throwing error. Uh, like I said, Spencer Watkins had problems, uh, but Keegan Aiken did not. He was good. Uh, Aiken in the Orioles' 5-3 loss at the Tampa Bay Rays this past Saturday afternoon uh, also did very well as a reliever. Three scoreless innings with three strikeouts. He gave up just one hit, which was a single, issued no walks, and he threw 27 strikes versus just four balls. So, you know, it's two outings. I'm not going to go crazy. But Keegan Aiken, who really struggled last season as a starting pitcher, maybe is finding himself here as a long reliever. And, you know, with the Orioles, given how bad their starting pitching is, if you are a long reliever for the O's, you can actually end up throwing a lot of innings over the course of a season. I mean, to me, pitching isn't about starting and relieving. It's about innings, right? How many innings do you provide? How many runs do you allow? And if Keegan Aiken isn't in the quote-unquote starting rotation, but he ends up being used a ton, like let's say for 100-plus innings as a reliever over the course of a season, well, there's value in that. And maybe for whatever reason, that's the right role for Keegan Aiken at the major league level. We'll see. I mean, again, it's two games, so we don't read too much into that. But it does stand out that Keegan Aiken, who was really bad at the major league level last season, has been quite good so far this season out of the bullpen. Uh, Game three for the O's against the Brewers at Camden Yards is on Wednesday night at 7.05. John Means versus Corbin Burns. All right, one more thing before we call it a show. Wizards president and general manager Tommy Shepard and Wizards head coach Wes Unsell Jr. spoke at length on Tuesday in a lengthy season-ending press conference session. Uh, Each guy spoke separately. You know, on the one hand, a lot was said. On the other hand, not much really was said because everything with the Wizards starts with what's going to happen with Bradley Beal this coming NBA offseason. And it's almost like until what's going to happen with Beal actually happens, I'm not sure that like much else matters here with the Wizards. Uh, Beal essentially has turned down the Wizards max contract extension offer to him from this past October. He can opt out of his current max contract this summer. Uh, He has indicated that he's leaning toward staying with the Wizards, i.e. he'll still opt out, but then re-sign with them via a Supermax contract. But who knows? I mean, nothing is official until it's official. Uh, If Beal chooses to leave the Wizards, then the Wizards will either lose him as an unrestricted free agent or lose him via a sign-and-trade. Shepard on Tuesday again spoke optimistically about Beal wanting to stay with the Wizards, but we shall see. I tell you, there's a big part of me as a Wizards fan that's just over this whole Bradley Beal, will he stay or won't he stay drama. And the Wizards constantly offering him max contracts and begging him to stay and treating him like the elite player he is not. And the Wizards constantly having these disappointing seasons. I mean, Bradley Beal, as we've discussed, he's a good player. He seems like a good guy, but I really do not like the position that the Wizards have put themselves in with him. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Thursday show, episode 
292. We'll feature plenty more on the Commanders. Uh, I will talk Nationals. Game three for the Nats at the Atlanta Braves is on Wednesday afternoon at 1220. I'll talk Orioles. Game three for the O's against the Milwaukee Brewers at Oriole Park at Camden Yards is on Wednesday night at 7.05. Have a great rest of your Wednesday, and I'll talk to you on Thursday. I was wondering, can I get a little more juice for the sandwich? You like it, the juice, eh? <laughs> yeah, it's, you know. The juice is good, eh? I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.